Well, welcome to our third season of Knowledge Cast. If you're a regular listener, we're glad to have you back. And if you're a first-time listener, we hope that you enjoyed today's podcast and will join us again next week. We have a great list of guests for this fall, and you can read about them by going to jackwwilliams.com and scrolling down to the podcast section. I'm battling a three-week-old cough, so I'm hoping that we can keep the, the cough from joining us in our conversation today. Well, our, our guest today is Dan Parker. Dan is the founding chairman emeritus of Parker Executive Search, which means he founded the company, but currently is kind of slowing down a little bit and letting others run his firm. The reason he's slowing down is over the past 30 years or so, he's led over 1,000 senior-level searches for higher education, health sciences, sports, and corporate clients throughout the Americas, Europe, Pacific Rim, Middle East, and Africa. I'd say he's earned the right to slow down. Uh, Dan has multiple degrees from Bruton Parker and the University of Georgia, along with a master's from the University of Georgia. Parker Executive Search is the number one boutique search firm in the Southeast and is the industry leader in sports searches and in the top five in higher education searches. Today, we're going to focus a lot on the sports market uh, that his firm serves because if there's a college athletic director or head coaching search taking place, there's a high probability that Parker Executive Search is involved. So welcome, Dan, to KnowledgeCast. Thank you, Jack. Well, Dan, you were the, let's get started. You were the, the number one producer for a leading international search firm when you decided to start your own firm, Parker Executive Search. What was the driving force that led you to go out on your own when you were you know, leading uh, an international company? Jack, it's a pleasure, and to those who will be uh, looking at this going forward in the future, it was my strategy. It was my uh, vision of what I wanted to do for the rest of my life, and uh, I really focused early on, and I would encourage anyone looking at their career, decide what they want to do at 30, 40, and 50, and beyond, and what I really wanted to do when I decided to go on my own was have unlimited upside potential and opportunity. I had the potential, I had the vision, but I didn't want someone standing in my way. And when you're in a corporate world or a larger firm or whatever it may be, there's always someone trying to uh, put, a, uh, put a fence around you. And as a leading builder, I decided to do my own thing. I also wanted to control the quality, the integrity, uh, and, my, uh, and, and my team, if you will, as well. So it boiled down to strategy. What did I want to be doing 30 years out? And uh, how did I want to protect the integrity? And we're still trying to do that. that. That's a challenge every day is how do you protect your reputation? Well, you know, you, you mentioned the word strategy. That clearly uh, was the driving force because it's very tempting for someone that's a, a leading producer in a, in a major international firm to just to continue to ride write it out and make a lot of money and do their own thing. So uh, I applaud you, first of all, for having the strategy and then stepping out with confidence to, to be able to uh, exercise and, and execute that strategy. Well, you decided to focus on uh, the fields of health science, education, sports, and higher education. What was your strategy for choosing those markets when you decided to go out on your own and start your own business? Well, first, it did not occur overnight, and my background and experience had always been in the corporate world. Uh, I started in banking, I evolved into human resources, 
And then I became head of uh, human resources for Samsonite Corporation and their youngest uh, presidential award winner at 29. So I was always uh, looking to advance the opportunity, career, uh, exposure, et cetera. And when I moved into executive search, it gave me yet another mountain or another opportunity to climb. And I was looking for balance. Uh, corporate work took me all over the world. I've traveled over 7 million miles on Delta Airlines alone and other airlines, probably another 2 million. We still today, for instance, represent the United Arab Emirates in searches for higher education and health sciences. Uh, I had the opportunity to take uh, Home Depot into China and do their first 40 or 50 searches uh, in their sourcing group. So uh, traveling uh, globally, doing work on a, a global basis was fun for me, but balance. Uh, we had a lot of recessions we worked through, five or six in my career. And so when I added uh, higher education, uh, it was a way of balancing out the ups and downs of, uh, business, uh, of the business world. Then I wanted to move into sports because I played uh, college baseball. I enjoyed uh, all sports. And there was really no one that was uh, conducting executive search uh, as we saw it with a strategy and professional professionally in the world of sports. And it took probably five years to convince people to really consider that. And then finally, we moved into health sciences in 08 and 09, because once again, 08, 09, and 10, if we remember, is, was almost a depression in this country. And so I was looking for yet another strategy to help us balance our business so we didn't have to lay people off. And uh, we've never done that at Parker Search. Well, you've uh, you've mastered the strategic part of business. Uh, being on the uh, uh, the downside end of being in a, a company that was too focused in one uh, segment, uh, again, I applaud the the, the uh, insight that you had to diversify. Uh, you know, I probably should have done this to start with, but some of our listeners may not understand the options that uh, clients have when they use a search firm. Uh, Explain the difference between a retained search and a contingency search. Well, let me start with contingency because you can go online and list your uh, resume with a variety of uh, headhunter.coms and others and firms that uh, uh, work on a contingency basis, meaning when they uh, place you in a position, uh, they get paid. We're actually working on a retainer from our clients like universities, like corporations, and bring us in to uh, consult with them. And when I talk about consulting, uh, if you're conducting a CEO search of a major bank, which we did many times, <clears throat> their, their expectation is what can we uh, do here to be successful? It's not just about a name. It's not about just uh, somebody with a certain background. It's about how do we fix the current problem? And, I, and I'll talk about that when we get into sports, and I'll give a couple of examples on that a little later. But uh, we're retained for them. We're paid by the company, uh, typically three equal retainers. Uh, we don't uh, solicit uh, people to call us. Uh, we tap successful executives, whether it's in the banking world, uh, whether it's in the world of higher education or health sciences or sports. And it's our business to know who's successful and also who may fit a particular situation, as well as timing of, of our ability and the clients to recruit them. 
Well, thank you for that clarification. Let, let's continue down this road on strategy. Uh, you made a, a conscious decision to focus on higher education and sports so that you could cross market your services. Uh, explain your thinking in developing that strategy where you could uh, leverage those relationships through that connectivity. Well, when you put the numbers together uh, in the NCAA, for instance, there's over 1,100 members. There's over 100 conferences in this country, which will shock and surprise some people because they think of the SEC or the Pac-12 or the Big Ten. But there's over 100 conferences in the country. There's over 1,100 uh, members of the NCAA, Division One, Division Two, II, Division Three, um, and there's maybe 4,000 colleges and universities in the country. So we felt if we were we were already conducting searches for chancellors and presidents and deans, provosts, and we were dealing with the boards and the uh, individuals who make the decisions. So we said, let's cross-reference that into athletics. And uh, it is the same people making the same decisions. So once you recruit a chancellor or president and it's a good process and it's a successful for the board or for the college university, then they'll come back to you and say, can you help us with a athletic director search? Can you help us fix our problem? Can you help us turn this situation around? And so we saw the opportunity to work with both uh, the board on conducting a president or a chancellor, as well as a chancellor or president working on a athletic director search. And then of course, if you recruit the athletic director, it gives you an opportunity to recruit their coach to help them become successful. Well, that's proven to be a great uh, strategy for you. And, and one of the ways that you were able to execute that strategy is you made a decision to differentiate your firm um, in the form of your database. And you created a very unique and thorough database. Explain the type of information that you compile on your prospective candidates. Well, you use my favorite word, differentiation. And I would say to everyone listening to this podcast, that find some way to differentiate yourself, find some way to give what I call the elevator speech. You're going 10 floors, be able to tell you who you are and what you do within 10 stops in that elevator. So from differentiating differentiation standpoint uh, with the colleges and universities and the database in particular, uh, and we spent hundreds of thousands of dollars on it, if not a couple of million dollars, we wanted to have the information that was ready, readily available to our clients. So if an athletic director or chancellor president comes in and sits down with us in our office and says, here are my needs, the first thing we want to do is listen to them. We'll go through this process a little later. We want to listen to them. We want to understand what their needs are. Then we want to hear who they're thinking about. And then what we want to do is be able to present and not overlook a single candidate. If you're doing it from the back of an envelope or you say, oh, this would be a good candidate or that a candidate, that's not the way we work. We want to have an A to Z process. So the database has uh, an individual's profile. All this information is public knowledge. Uh, we also have information for, uh, through the NCA by permission of the NCA and colleges and universities on any issues of concern. If somebody has uh, a DWI, uh, we, we know that, we have that in our database. If, if they have any recruiting violations, we are aware of that. 
And so we do, we conduct a lot of uh, background work uh, with public universities through open records. You can get a copy of the contracts. So when a client's sitting down with us and we're looking at a profile on a screen or on a Zoom, they're looking at an individual's entire background. And if they say, well, they make X, and we'll say, no, it's actually X plus plus, because we can pull up that contract and say, here's what they're making. Here's what probably their expectations are based upon the competition. So the database is complete from A to Z. It has every coach, assistant coach in it. We've had agents, we've had even candidates say, can I send you my information? And we say, thank you, but no, we already have your information. And by the way, Jack, when we got into this, uh, it was not unheard of that uh, coaches or uh, other administrators might yeah, stretch the truth on degrees or I was captain of an XYZ football team back when. Uh, so we kind of cleaned that up because we get all that information, it's in the database, and we don't ask them for the resume, we already have the information on, on each candidate. And uh, you haven't heard anything for years and years about somebody claiming a degree that they don't have. And, and I take a lot of credit for putting in place a process where we confirm degrees for all candidates. Well, I bet you had some interesting responses when someone said, well, I'll send you my resume and you tell them, well, no, no, we already have everything we need to know on you. Well, early on, Jack, I had one that says, uh, because we get them to sign a statement of accuracy before they see the client, even though we have all that information. And I had one say to me, uh, may I send this to my lawyer for his review? And I said, you can send it to anybody you want to, but when you sign that statement of accuracy, we do not change it. We accept it. It's, it's gospel at that point. And so uh, that was kind of interesting early on, but they don't try to pull anything on us anymore because uh, we set the standard at a very high level. And by the way, you know, you don't need a master's degree to be a coach. You may not need a PhD to be an athletic director. And we try to explain that to people and don't claim being uh captain of the football team when you were not because that's easy enough to prove or disprove well let's uh i think this would be interesting walk us through what it would what the process is when an athletic director comes to you and says we've got a, an opening for a head coach in one of our sports how does that work well the very first thing first question we ask is uh we want to understand your needs talk to us and uh one of the things I would tell as a search consultant uh, in anybody hiring process, be a good listener. Say, tell me what you need. Tell me something about yourself and sit there and listen. And then say, tell me more and tell me more and, and, uh, and, and, and listen. They will. They, uh, a client will go into great detail. Now, all this information is confidential. It doesn't go between beyond the client and Parker search. But tell us what you're looking for. Are you looking for a winner? Are you looking for somebody to raise money? You're looking for this. You're looking for that. What can you afford to pay? That's kind of the next question. We work them through compensation. We've had clients that say, I can't afford to uh, uh, terminate my client, uh, my candidate. Today, some of these termination clauses run into the millions of dollars. And, um, you know, we sit there and say, well, that's what it's going to cost you. This is our fee. This is the interviewing process. And this is what it's going to take to recruit coaches. 
Um, let me stop and interject that we recruit, we, re we advise, and we facilitate. Recruit, advise, and facilitate. We do not, quote, place a candidate. We've never used the word placement. And uh, we do not really have a, a decision or a vote in the process. Now, clients always ask our opinion and we can influence the decision, but we want it to be theirs. Our objective is to present them a very broad base of, of candidates in which to interview and consider and ensure when they take that candidate to the podium that a 21-year-old sports writer does it, ask them a question that we have not uh, considered. And finally, um, we're looking um, uh, uh, for timing, process, meeting their needs, and kind of remarkable, not everybody is looking for a conference championship or a national cha championship. Uh, they may be cleaning up a situation. Uh, some administrators and boards do not have the appetite to win a championship or even the uh, bank account, if you will, to win a championship. Uh, other clients are interested in, uh, in creating uh, diversity on campus. Uh, they want to do add integrity to their program. Uh, we've seen a lot of Division I in your lifetime and mine, a lot of Division uh, II and three schools moved to Division I in football, and that's to create a higher profile. So that goes back to what are you looking for? What's your timing? What can you afford? Then we advise them on all of that. And then you may find this interesting. Uh, we develop a pool of candidates called the target pool. And that is if, if you wanted and if you could afford Nick Saban, he becomes a target. And you pick up the phone and call him or his agent and at that point is pretty much, what's it gonna take to attract him from Alabama to someplace else? Realistically, you rarely get your target candidate. You go to the A-list or what we like to do is call A-plus list because you got a, you, you have an objective of, uh, we're going to look at a dozen or so candidates who we really like, but we've also got to fill this job. So if we had to go to the second list, we never call that a B-list. We want to ensure that they get the A-candidate. And we also want to send a message uh, to their alums, to their customers, that they got the candidate they really wanted at that university. Well, that's clearly a thorough process, and it's worked well for you. Uh, you've been involved in, in too many to count high-profile hires of college ADs, presidents, and head coaches. Uh, are there one or two that stand out that were kind of either the most interesting for you or the most challenging? Well, um, Yes, uh, you know, and I could uh, I could entertain you for days about this. We don't talk about candidates who did not get a job or typically uh, clients who currently have the same candidate, but I can talk about Notre Dame and Brian Kelly, for instance. Uh, Notre Dame had not had a, a success in some time with their candidates or with their, with their football program. And... Uh, you know, Notre Dame, uh, listen, we have to all be honest, it's the biggest brand on a national basis. So we've got a call from Father John Jenkins, who's still president there. We recruited his athletic director, Jack Swarbrick, who's their, I believe, their longest sitting athletic director. And then he asked us to help on a coach search. And so we, we did undertake that search. 
they'd never done anything confidential before. And that's one of the hallmarks of what we do. Nobody really knows what we're doing when we're doing it. And we put together a long list of candidates and ultimately uh, Brian Kelly was selected to lead their program. He's their all-time winningest coach. And as we now know, he's gone on to LSU for his uh, final chapter in his career. But what we were impressed with Brian Kelly about is he had won everywhere he'd been. He'd won a national championship at a D2 school, gone on to Central Michigan and won a conference championship and then to Cincinnati. And he took them to two consecutive New Year's Day bowls. And uh, he was on my short list early on because he was successful. And Notre Dame is such a big job. In his first year, he made over 200 appearances. That kind of got away from him, and they had to pull it back in. But as I once teased somebody at Notre Dame, you have to get up every day and read seven newspapers to know how well you did yesterday. So <laughs> we're very proud of uh, that search. He went on in his third year to play for a national championship. Uh, he, he took them to two or three playoffs, didn't win a national championship, but, again, they all-time went in his coach. Uh, James Franklin uh, at Vanderbilt, now at Penn State. Uh, I had to convince James Franklin to consider Vanderbilt. They wanted to turn the program around. And in his uh, in, in, in one year there, I think it was his third year, uh, Vanderbilt beat Georgia, Tennessee, and Florida in the same year. He went back-to-back -back, uh, nine games before he went on to Penn State. And when I called him the first time, he said, Dad, I, why would I be interested in Vanderbilt? because I'm told it's the graveyard of coaches. <laughs> and I said, well, James, let me tell you what's changed. And we had to have a, a, a plan of what had changed. And what had changed was facilities and commitment to win and a variety of other things. And then James went on to Penn State. And one final one I would uh, talk about is Scott Frost, Scott Frost at UCF, who is now in Nebraska. We recruited Scott Frost, who was the offensive coordinator from Oregon. We couldn't recruit a top sitting coach to UCF, but we wanted somebody to compete with Florida, Florida State, Georgia. And the reality is they thought they could do it. They had a fabulous AD, uh, Danny White, who is now the athletic director at the University of Tennessee. He's turning that program around. And in the third year at uh, Orlando, they went undefeated and, and uh, Danny White and UCF declared a national championship, Jack. <laughs> Remember, uh, they actually had a parade at Disney. They gave everybody rings. And who's to say they didn't win a national championship because they were undefeated and beat Oklahoma or somebody out in the Fiesta Bowl. So, I'd, have done the, I'd have done the same thing. <laughs> absolutely. And Scott Frost had a plan. And that's why he was chosen as the athletic director. And that's why he moved back to his home school of Nebraska. Wow. Uh, well, those are three great examples. As we wrap up, uh, this is a tough question to wrap up with with limited time, but collegiate athletics is facing some challenges that they haven't faced in the past. And um, that's kind of an understatement. But what do you feel are the priorities that these decision makers have got to address for college sports to continue to be such a, a major form of entertainment in our society? Well, there's some obvious things. Uh, uh, name, image, and likeness that was talked about at the SEC this weekend. And we know about uh, 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 Coach Saban and, and Coach Fisher getting into their thing over uh, paying players. But it's legal now. It's always happened, I'm afraid. But it's legal. The transfer portal, uh, having 
young, young men or young women transfer, you know, if they don't like what the coach said to them. And Jack, you played ball. So you remember those days uh, that uh, you had to do what the coach did. It was part of your discipline, part of the training, part of the results. Um, salaries and facilities are just ridiculous today. Uh, and keeping up, they called it the arms race, but the reality is you've got to have a better facility. Um, and, uh, but then there's other things that people don't really think about and that's sports gambling. Um, I'm afraid we're going to have sports gambling. I mean, let's look at Mercedes, uh, dome in Atlanta, uh, a, uh, a gambling casino has the two largest suites there. So could we have gambling in the stadium as early as this year, or next year, could that occur? Uh, at Georgia Tech or at UGA, and we said we'd never see beer being sold, but we see beer being sold today, Jack, so we could see gambling. But what I would really leave the group with is, uh, are we going to be able to maintain amateur sports? Are we moving to a professional sports model? And the answer is yes, unless we correct it. Are we going to have an amateur sports? And finally, it's in Congress's uh, hands now. They're not going to do anything until after the 22 election, probably into 23, because kind of the NCAA has thrown up their hands. Will we have an NCAA? Will it survive? Uh, will we have conference consolidation? I've been predicting for a long time that we could see uh, the top 32 teams or the top uh, 48 teams pick them, uh, pull off and create their own uh, on sector association and also take back March Madness uh, because March Madness, which NCAA controls about the last thing they control is worth about a billion, a billion and a half dollars a year. So there's an awful lot of money there. And, you know, to our, our folks listening to this, always follow the money and you'll find out where the trail leads. Uh, that's a, a very, very true statement. Uh, well, I, you know, I'm a, uh, traditionalists, and I, I hope that we don't lose the amateur uh, status of these athletes. I understand where the transition is going and why, but uh, I think one professional organization is enough. I don't think we need another one. Well, Dan, uh, it was a, a real pleasure and a privilege having you with us today and, and sharing your experiences and, and great insights and, and what a wonderful example of how strategy can uh, do great things uh, for an organization uh, through its leadership. And I know I learned a lot about the search process uh, in the world of college sports. And I really wish we could spend more time because I've got more questions I'd love to ask you. But uh, unfortunately, we're going to need to wrap up. But thanks so much for being with us today, Dan. Thank you, Jack. And I would just encourage everybody listening to this is develop your own strategy, not somebody else's strategy for it and differentiate yourself and then persevere. We, life is a journey, not a sprint. And at 75 years old, I started this business over 40 years ago with 20 years of experience. So just keep in mind, it's a journey, not a sprint. Well, I saw a quote today that obstacles are not um, blocking the path. Obstacles actually are the path. Um, never thought of it that way. Well, all right, folks, uh, I want to thank once again uh, for you joining us today and, and uh, encourage each of you to make it your goal this week to be a positive influence in the lives of others. And I look forward to having you back with us again 
next week. Hey, before you go, we wanted to let you know about Jack's book called The Question, a guide to answering life's most important question. In this book, Jack shares his personal journey that began in 1993 to determine the values, principles, and beliefs that would guide his life. Whether you are a spouse, parent, grandparent, friend, leader, educator, coach, or mentor, Jack's I Believe statements apply to all the roles he has played during his lifetime and can do the same for you. Jack's message applies to all people, ages, and careers. It's an easy read with compelling stories, enjoyable humor, and sincere transparency. The question is now available in ebook and paperback exclusively on Amazon. Go to jackwwilliams.com slash the question to learn more and buy your copy today. Again, thanks for joining us for this episode and join us next week for an all new episode of KnowledgeCast by Ideals.